we prefer to start at the bottom of the funnel. So start with people that are already engaged with your brand and have shown a willingness to do business with you before, but for whatever reason have stopped have stopped. They have not exhibited the behavior you expect. They're not repurchasing the way you expect. You're you're not reaching them because obviously they're probably in an email flow or, or other retargeting campaigns and they've not converted. Direct mail allows you to, again, get back in front of them. Michael Epstein was an incredible guest. We talk about Michael's processes in consulting with nine-figure brands. We touch on Michael's history in business, his fantastic start in entrepreneurship on a college dorm, and how he managed to stay ahead of the curve in advertising from banner ads to email to keywords and now direct mail. Well, hey, Michael, how's it going? Good, Connor. Good to be with you. Wicked. Wicked. You're already, you're already adopting the, the Massachusetts lingo. Yeah, I, I visited um, my girlfriend's parents on the weekend and I felt like I was in like the Sopranos living room. Nice. Everybody's like, oh, you get yourself some cheese. It's over here, Connor. Come on in. And I'm kind of like, well, this is crazy. It's beautiful to be in, in the States. It's, it's amazing how much this, the United States projects to the rest of the world and how much I know. It's pretty funny. People don't expect like people from other parts of the world to know much about the States. Like while I've been here in the last two weeks, I've been asked, do you know who the Yankees are? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they're pretty big. They're pretty big. Right. Right. Yeah. You heard of Justin Bieber? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, thanks for having, um, thanks for coming on the show, Michael. I'll just introduce you. I know that you're a board member of Hostpilot and that you've also started many successful e-commerce companies. But what I wanted to ask you firstly is what do you like to do, you know, outside of your income when you've got free time? What do you value in life? Really just spending time with my kids. Uh, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit about it before you're lucky in getting to travel before you're all settled down. But once I had kids, if I'm not working, it's all about just spending as much time as I can doing the things that, that they enjoy because I'll, I'll, I take joy in seeing them having fun and doing fun things as a family. Awesome. What was your life like growing up? Like, is it similar now with your kids or is it like drastically different? Yeah. I mean, I was always into a bit of a workaholic from the time I was young where I was taking odd jobs and starting businesses from, I think I had a DJ business in junior high and, and high school and a car detailing business in high school. I was always just entrepreneurial. So I don't think it came as any surprise to my family that I started a company while I was still in my college dorm room and grew that in the first year to over a million in sales, went on to grow it to tens of millions and, and ultimately an exit in 2013. That's when I I got involved, uh, sold it to private equity and, and got involved in private equity operating work where myself and, and my business partner and co-founder Postpilot had a similar story. And we joined up in 2013 and, and started doing this private equity operating work where we'd go in and kind of be the bench for private equity funds that had portfolio companies focus on e-com and direct-to-consumer. So we would either do advisory work or help them on due diligence when pursuing a deal or actually go and, and get hands-on in some cases to help them grow the business. A lot of cases were turnarounds where they acquired companies that were distressed and needed to, to get them back on track. And that's what we were doing for, for a while until uh, post-pilot. Nice. 
So always kind of been in e-com and direct-to-consumer. The, the company I started was an e-com retailer and manufacturer of consumer electronics back in 2000 before Shopify, before Google, before all this stuff. And it's been in my DNA for a long time, over 20 years. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty credible. How did you do that Like before all of those DAWs and things? I think the first website was on a platform that nobody here will, will know or remember called Me of a Merchant and then I think OS Commerce. And we used a predecessor to Google Ads before that was a thing. The first search ads was actually a company called GoTo, which became Overture, which got acquired by Yahoo. And then Google came with AdWords and just obliterated that company. We built our company through what would now be known as influencer marketing. It, it didn't have a term associated with it at that time, but this was when people were just first starting their own websites around different niches and categories. And so ours was consumer electronics and a lot of gaming. So people would create websites around popular video games and gaming and, and consumer electronics in general. And we found them and partnered with them and they helped spread the word because again, it wasn't even like search engines were that big at that time. It was, it was just partnering with people that had an audience and uh, that's how we grew it so quickly. How did you get in touch with them? We would just email them and people were, were game to try new things and struck partnerships with a lot of them. And that's what really got us off the ground and, and helped us grow until we got into more of, you know, SEO and paid acquisition model that became standard in the years that that followed at that point. Who's the influencer? These people have an audience that's slightly different to how like people would have an audience now that they have like a blog and then you come in and you go, we can connect you to other people, like others, like, is it the same linear other influencers with blogs or are you connecting them to like, well, no, you're, you're connected to the customer, like, right? It would now be probably called a blog at the time. It was probably just a website and yeah. They would just create a website and uh, either code it themselves or use whatever platforms were available at the time, which were not many, and and just um, create these websites dedicated to and forums and things like that dedicated to these niche communities of of gamers or people that were into technology or consumer electronics. And yeah, we'd approach them via email and we'd come up with some affiliate type deal and and they would help promote the products or we'd advertise on their websites and they had just a captive audience of our of our target customer. And, and that's, that's how we grew. And then, yeah, again, started adopting traditional kind of search ads when that, when that became a thing and kept growing from there. True, true. So it was kind of just hopping on the latest. So were you doing like banner ads on those websites? What did the affiliate look like? The ugliest banner ad you could ever imagine at this point, but it was like <laughs> yeah. one of the first, those were you know, when banner ads were still a thing. And <laughs> they were awful. Yeah. They yeah, didn't I change remember. for so many years as well. They were just like the same one. Right. There's a great article by Andrew Chen, who is the head of growth. He was the head of growth for Uber and is now a partner with Andreessen Horowitz called The Law of Shitty Click-Throughs. Kind of like a seminal article that he wrote, which talks about how marketing channels continue to get saturated and costs go up as competition increases, as all competition drives up costs and drives oversaturation of these channels. So people start ignoring them. And one of the things he talked about was like the first banner ad was the ugliest thing. I think it just said click here or something. And it got like a 50% click through rate or yeah. something like that. And now it gets, you know, 0.01%. But to kind of segue that a little bit, that what drives a lot of the interest now in direct mail and, and with Postpilot is that 
these channels that continue to evolve and get popular over time continue to get more and more saturated over time. So it used to be, obviously, that your email inbox was where all the important, only the important stuff went. And your mailbox, your physical mailbox is where a lot of junk mail went. Now it's just completely flip-flop to where your email inbox is 140 messages a day. People ignore them or delete them, or it goes to your promotions tab and you never see them. And Email engagement continues to go down and down and down to where the average open rate is under 20%. And that's of people that are subscribed. Facebook ads are now being impacted by the iOS updates and competition continues to drive up cost as ROAS continues to go down. And digital in general is just becoming so oversaturated that people are just blind and numb to these tactics at this point and ignoring them. And so there's just been this massive increase in appetite to diversify your channels and find unsaturated new ways to reach and engage your target audience and your customers. And that's what's just led to this big resurgence in direct mail, particularly among e-com and direct-to-consumer brands that were previously completely dependent on channels like Facebook and digital ads. I'll just quickly say, to be clear, like so Postpilot is now sending out postcards instead of emails to make sure that people get the ad, they touch it, they think about it. But do you have a system for like, oh, they actually got the postcard? Do you have any like feedback loop for that? Or is it kind of just like send them out? Just to kind of give the overview, Postpilot is a native Shopify app with integrations to Shopify, Klaviyo, and other e-commerce tools. And It's a direct mail automation platform that allows you to send individually personalized, segmented, triggered, like automated, and tracked direct mail postcard campaigns as easily as email. So Mm -hmm. think Klaviyo for postcards, if you're familiar with Klaviyo, the the big ESP for for e-com stores. And kind of forget everything you, you knew about or perceived about traditional direct mail in the past, which was like this batch and blast kind of campaign structure. You It was a bunch of spreadsheets and uploading it to a print house and blasting a bunch of people either with a zip code or, or the met certain attributes and then using more spreadsheets to figure out, try and figure out what the return on that campaign was. We've really made it, again, because direct consumer e-com and digital marketing is my DNA and our and my co-founder's DNA. So we, we set out to build a platform that feels familiar and functions like a digital marketing tool. You can send email campaigns, think of, or direct mail campaigns that are similar to how you would think about an email campaign. I want to segment these customers. I want to target everyone that's bought within the last 30 to 120 days and bought this product or spent over this amount to re- to announce a new product that we're launching or a new sale that we're promoting. You can send that as a campaign or you can do something even more powerful, which is flows and, and automations like you have in an email flow or an email automation. So that's triggered. You define what the criteria is that you want to, to use to target, to trigger that campaign. For example, someone makes a purchase. If they don't purchase, again, within 35 days, trigger a camp, trigger a card to go to that person that says, hey, it's time to come back. We miss you. It's time for a refill, whatever it may be. And that card is individually triggered and personalized. So it would say, hey, Connor, it's time for a refill on the supplements you just purchased. You'll receive that card. We know because we're integrated with Shopify, when you receive that card, we know if you go on to make a subsequent purchase and we can attribute that back to the card that you received. And we know if you used a coupon code that was on that card, whether it was a static code 
or a single use code, meaning a unique code sent to every individual recipient of that card. And mm. we can attribute the use of that code directly back to the, to the card as well. And so you're engaging with the 80 plus percent of customers, like your best audience, the people that have done business with you and shown a willingness to do business with you that you are not reaching using email. You can reach that large swath of customers in a way that they're going to engage with. And we can track the ROI in real time. And typically brands are seeing eight, 10, you know, we run campaigns that see 20 plus X return on ad spend very frequently on those types of campaigns. And then we continue to move up the funnel. So from customers more to, to prospecting, but we we start with this customers that have done business with you, but you're unable to reach via traditional digital channels or just ignoring your message or not getting it. And direct mail is just a hugely effective way of getting in front of them, getting them to engage and getting incremental revenue and LTV from, from those customers. Wicked. Can you tell us about the, not to give away any sort of like magic secrets, but like, you know, if you're going to be doing it to cold traffic, as opposed to those customers who already bought from you, like, what does that look like? Again, we think about it very differently from traditional notion of direct mail. Traditional mail houses just, they want you to start with cold outreach because one, it's the only thing they can do. And two, it's the highest volume. Like, great, you want to send to everybody in this state or everybody who has a female between 25 and 44 with this household income? Great, we'll send 100,000 cards for you. And then the problem is that's very tough. It's very tough to make work and get an acceptable ROI when you're doing that. It takes a long-term commitment to the channel, to analysis, to continued iteration and refinement of that strategy. We prefer to start at the bottom of the funnel. So start with people that are already engaged with your brand and have shown a willingness to do business with you before, but for whatever reason have stopped have stopped. They have not exhibited the behavior you expect. They're not repurchasing the way you expect. You're you're not reaching them because obviously you're probably they're probably in an email flow or, or other retargeting campaigns and they've not converted. Direct mail allows you to again get back in front of them, get them back, much higher ROI on those types of campaigns, and then work your way up the funnel. So for example, we just worked with a brand called Beard Brand. It's a one of like the OG men's grooming brands run by an awesome direct-to-consumer marketer, Eric Banholtz. He targeted, they sell these men's grooming products for obviously people with beards. He wanted to target people that had not purchased in at least six months. So you're pretty defected at six months of not buying a grooming product, which is typically bought every 30 to 60 days. If you haven't bought within 180 days, you've likely defected. Uh, Shaved your bid. Yeah. And he layered in people that were unsubscribed to his email list. We don't, we say it's not even necessary that you do that. But for the sake of this task campaign, we went with like the most, the people he was unable to reach with his, with email period, because they were unsubscribed. He got a 10X return on that campaign. So people that were long gone, unable to be reached via email, 10x return on those folks by sending them a direct mail campaign. And we see that all the time. Um, Obvi, Rocket Ship D2C Supplements brand. They, they, they did $30 million in their first 30 months of existence, like killer marketers, killer branding. But again, typical repurchase for supplements is 30, maybe six, up to 60 days. If you're not buying again, Something's changed in your life or something's pulled you away and distracted you and gotten you off the routine. 
again, start targeting customers at 90 days. If they haven't purchased within 90 days, something is wrong and they have not responded to our follow-up email campaigns or our SMS campaigns or our retargeting campaigns, we need to get them back because the LTV of that customer is so high when you keep them buying. You're not paying up for the, the customer acquisition cost is really high. So the, you have to keep them buying if you want to make any money. You're not even really making money on those first couple purchases. So we've got to get them back. And so we sent campaigns to customers that hadn't bought again within 90 days. I think it's up to a 22x ROI on that campaign. Again, they were trying to reach them through digital channels. They were not responding but 22x return on these customers that we reached out to via direct mail and got them back. And they didn't buy just once more. They got back into their regular routine and kept buying over and over and over again. So the value, the actual value of that campaign is just massive because it's so much more profitable when you get that customer back versus paying to acquire them again. <laughs> You're sitting on a gold mine there. That's pretty it cool. Works. Yeah, it works. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's inspiring. What do you think it is about just receiving a physical postcard that, that like leads to those kinds of results compared to like an SMS is kind of like personal as well. And it's right there. Yeah. But I think a couple of things, and it's a great question. One, digital ads are often seen as a distraction or an annoyance or an interruption or an annoyance. And so even emails, you're just kind of getting bombarded with them. They're fleeting. Like you see, and same with an SMS. People are getting so many SMS messages, so many emails, they're instantly forgotten. You just see them, you just ignore them or you delete them or you or you just move on from them really quickly. St there's just been a lot of research that also shows that receiving a physical piece of mail in your hand is perceived more like a gift. And that's why it just gets so much more engagement. Like you, you get a piece of mail from a brand that you recognize and have done business with, you're going to see it, you're going to read it. Some people may discard it, but you've actually spent the time to actually look at it and see it and process that message. And it's just much more memorable. And a lot of our brands, for example, Promix, a, another big supplements brand, he was talking just the other day about how having a physical representation of your brand in the customer's hand and in their home it's just so powerful and effective relative to digital ads that, again, just are so fleeting. And so yeah, he gets massive returns on, on the campaigns that he runs, but he also just loves that it's it's it makes his brand feel bigger than it is. It makes his brand feel more credible, and it just creates a relationship with that customer that is so unique and more memorable than just blasting an email like everybody else. So the data supports all of this but we hear it from brands just all the time. It, it's just, it is a more memorable and unique touch point now in this kind of age of digital overload. Are you guys doing R&D on the metaverse? In what, in what respect? Like, like <laughs> delivering virtual mail? Yeah, yeah, I just thought that like, you seem to be ahead of the curve on everything and it would just be pretty funny if you were like, oh yeah, we have like an NFT as well. A virtual not, postman not, like going around? That, yeah, that'd, yeah. that'd be cool. I cannot <laughs> say that we have spent time on that specifically, but but yeah, that's it's an interesting idea. No, nah, yeah, don't do that. I But I was interested in, do you think that it's a cycle? Like what you described earlier about the, the email being like what once like quite an amazing thing. Like, whoa, I got an email and now it's like, ah, whoa, I got a letter. Like, do you think that that'll flip or do you think we'll go into something else? I definitely don't think that the trend towards physical and kind of offline touch points is going to change anytime soon. 
I just think that this age of digital overload is not stopping or changing. People aren't going to pull back in a major way from digital spend, or, or if they do, other brands are going to fill that gap. And you're just going to continue to kind of bombard people with digital messages and ads. And physical, while we see a big increasing demand and trend towards direct mail and physical kind of touch points, all these brands, and we hear it from brands all the time, they have to start developing, if they aren't already, this multi-channel, multi-touch point strategy because you have to meet customers where they are. You have to find different ways to engage them. And how many times do you respond to the first ad that you see? Usually it takes multiple touches across multiple channels to get customers to take the action that you want. And so direct mail and physical kind of touch points like that in general, I think have a lot of runway before they get anywhere close to being saturated. And even so, they're still going to be an important component of your overall marketing mix. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's time to return to the traveling salesman. Right. Totally. <laughs> In all seriousness, just that that face-to-face engagement and just those types of experiences are the things that are now going to help stand out and be more unique. I'm not suggesting everyone hire a bunch of door-to-door salesmen yeah. by any means, but but just the essence of that experience, that offline experience and engagement with brands is going to continue to be really, really important. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's kind of scary thinking about it when you when you explain that like, you know, you're going to create a vacuum if you to if you were to ditch digital ads and somebody's just going to come in and continue the bombardment. Like I I always think like how much the consumers expected to take. We're seeing right now kind of like the, you know, the exponential trend is growing due to like the pandemic. Most people are now like shopping online far more, e-commerce is booming. I kind of think we're going to reach like a singularity almost in the physical digital like dichotomy because yeah, I just don't know if people are ex- like we as humans should be able to take this. I feel like there there could be a kind of revolution where people are like, well, I actually just quit Instagram. I don't see any Facebook ads anymore. And hell, I like quit Gmail, you know, like what, what would we do then as e-commerce marketers? Do you have any ideas? Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that people give up on digital marketing by any means. I think I've been a digital marketer for 20 years. Yeah. I'm yeah. a proponent of that and lifecycle marketing in general across all channels. I just think that you've got to diversify from, if you're, if you have been dependent, beholden to the Google tax and the Facebook tax to build your business, like that is not a long-term viable strategy. And to your point, I, I was reading something even last night, how there's just this increasing kind of resistance to, to Google as a search, as a search provider, because now so much of that real estate on the on the results page is taken yeah. up by ads. They're just 60%. it's just all ads. And yep. so again, it's people are are starting to tune that out. And eventually, to your point, I think. You know, these brands are going to have to realize at some point that the experience is being degraded so much that they're losing actual users and visitors. But at the same time, this is the cat. I mean, this is the the cash cow for them. This is the the business model is built on that. So it's going to mm-hmm. be very difficult to move away from that. You're just going to have to continue to find channels that you're where your customers where you can actively engage your customers, and it's not going to continue to be exclusively through search and social ads and email going forward. Like this isn't really to do with what you're doing. You, you're probably, you're doing a great thing with the, with the direct mail, but like me personally, I have like a, a pretty sophisticated ad blocker. So I don't even see like recommended YouTube videos. Like it's, it's, I have like a blank slate internet experience and I feel like I'm probably like in the minority there, 
people are going to use Neva and Brave instead sure. of Google. They'll just pay for it and they'll be like, oh, five bucks a month. I don't have to get ads. I use DuckDuckGo, which is kind of crap. But like, you know, when these things come out, I'll use them. And then what's going to happen? I think it's very interesting. Like, it's kind of like we're definitely coming to a point where the creative marketers are going to blow everybody out of the water because, you know, at a certain point in time, well, yeah, like you said, like things are just going to get degraded. And like, I don't know if you've seen Ready Player One, but there's a scene where like in the virtual world, they like, they figure out that you can put 80% of people's experience with ads before they have an epileptic seizure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's obviously like a hyperbole, but I'm also like, well, that could happen, you know? Sure. I mean, I I think you're right in that increasing number of people are using ad blockers and things like that, which again, it's because you you crave a different experience, but from the a brand and advertiser perspective, it means they don't have a way to get in front of you yeah, yeah. using the traditional channels that they've been dependent on. There's going to be a growing number of people that will continue to want to use like ad blockers and things like that. The nice thing about direct mail is it's not subject to the same, obviously there's not an ad blocker for it, and it's not yeah. subject to things like can spam or other types of compliance around opting in. So you can reach literally 100% of your customers. And of course, they can request to be taken off. I'd say the amount of people that do that, I can probably count on one hand out of like millions and millions of pieces. But again, it's just, it's a way to reach essentially all, all of your customers or audience that has engaged with your brand. It's just becoming kind of a must-have part of the overall marketing mix if you're if you want to continue to reach your customers. Yeah, it is exciting. Do you guys do um outside of the US? We do. Currently don't we have our own production facility in the US, so we have our own full commercial printing operation. We do it all in-house to ensure that it's the highest quality. We don't have physical plants located outside the US, so we have to send it from the US and so the the cost is a lot higher. We don't promote international a lot. We don't do a ton. We do some, but because of just the pure postage cost to send from the U.S. outside the U.S., it makes it you know a little less cost effective to do that. But mm. we are planning on setting up uh, international partners over over the next year or so that can help send the pieces locally and then incur obviously a much lower postage cost and make it make it more feasible. Yeah, yeah. Having done a 13 months long distance with my girlfriend, uh, writing love letters is kind of a, <laughs> it's a bit right. of a false, false errand. Right. Do you guys have any environmentally friendly versions of postcards or are you looking to do that in the future? Yeah, good question. We get that question a lot more in the last couple of years as obviously that's been something more top of mind for a lot of brands being eco-friendly and just responsible We've always been that way, uh, nice. using recycled material, using inks that are that are eco-friendly. And then we also have a program where we plant double the number of trees that we use in our cards and ensure that we're more than offsetting any actual paper usage. Dude, you need to put that top of the landing page. That, yeah. that, that sells me. Really? Good to yeah, know. That- we are... We're uh, in the process of doing some some updates to the site too, and that's going to be a more prominent piece because we're getting more and more questions about it. Yeah, I mean, that was my first thought when I was going through the business. I was like, I would love to do that for my film company, kind of like, you know, it's like an extra thing. I did a film in Greece two years ago for a hotel, and they gave me the business card after I did the film, and they said, they invited me to cycle around the world with them. They were like, we're doing this thing, we'd love to have you because 
um, you're a filmmaker, we'd love to have you like, you know, film the film, the cycle around the world thing. And I was like, that sounds wicked. And they gave me the card and it was like a, it was wooden with like burnt engravings on it. And I still have that card three years later. So yeah, that's what I thought when I saw um, your company Postpilot. I was like, am I going to sign up and send out like a thousand pieces of glossy plastic that are going to get thrown away? And, you know, so that's, that's awesome to hear. Like, uh, I didn't expect that. So thank you. It's good. Yeah. Oh, well, good to get the feedback because it's continue to validate kind of how we're thinking about it. But you're definitely right. We're going to make it more prominent because we know brands care about it and we care about it. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's kind of like your whole, you want, you want it all to be sort of linear and holistic as a company in New Zealand to make eco-friendly packaging. And it's, it's beautiful. You know, you, you kind of want to not just because you sell, you know, bamboo toothbrushes, you want to also sell bamboo toothbrushes that come in a, in a compostable bag. So yeah, keeping it holistic is cool. What else are you looking forward to in the coming years? I mean, now we're going out of hopefully many lockdowns and like the world's going to change. People are probably very excited to get out and start things. What's what's next for Postpilot? Well, I think we continue to move kind of up the funnel. You asked earlier about more on the prospecting side. Again, we, we advise brands to start lower in the funnel and then work your way up. But now we have brands that are also doing things like taking their email opt-ins, people that have not converted yet, have probably gotten the email welcome sequence. We, we can scrub that against the data set of physical addresses. So because they haven't purchased from you yet, you would normally not have their address. If we can source that address, we can then send them a card that gets them to convert. And so again, it's moving up funnel, but in a more responsible and, and, and results-oriented way Because these are, again, people that have at least demonstrated a level of intent and interest in your business versus pure cold people that have never heard of you and have never displayed any sort of intent to buy. They've been to your website. They've even chosen to give their email address, but they clearly have not converted. And again, you've probably retargeted them through ads. You've probably sent them your email welcome sequence or retargeting or abandoned card sequence. They have not converted. So you can get net new customer acquisition, but at a much higher ROI going pure cold. And so these are the kinds of things that we're continuing to roll out, expand the, the, the universe of campaigns that people can send. We have interesting technology that we, we acquired last year that allows you to send actual handwritten cards automatically. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so, I heard that. Yeah, this is using proprietary robots. So actual pen to paper, like holding a pen, Writing on paper with all the nuance of a human hand, you have the letter variation and the different indentation and spacing and waviness, like all the things that make it that make it human. We've created with our technology, and so you can, if you really want to deliver a surprise and delight experience, like for your VIP customers, it's a great additional touch point. Super memorable. Again, think about it. If you're pull, if you're pulling out your mail, you get a hand addressed envelope in the mail with a stamp on it and your name written on it in pen. How often do you get that these days? You are 100% opening that piece of mail, reading it, and you are remembering the brand that sent that to you. So it's just a, it's an awesome touch point. We're going to continue to create these other sorts of tangible experiences that, that brands can use to reach, engage, and, and stay memorable with their customers. I was just thinking again, like until until 100% of brands are using handwritten notes, then you'll be the guy that, that comes in and says, 
we need to go back to right like 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 typing it but yeah no that's that's awesome people don't know no it's great i mean it is, it's pen to paper and it's really really effective and again it's just meant as a as an additional touch point to just say thank you to a vip customer acknowledge yeah, them right. it's all personalized uh you can you know sign it from your name and it's just a a really nice way to, to reach your customer. And yeah, it's, we can actually copy your own handwriting. Like we can digitize your own handwriting. If oh, you cool. want, but most people you can't, you can't digitize mine. Mine's terrible. That's, that's <laughs> the, that's the perfect kind. Yeah. That's yeah. The, true. True. That's the kind that um, we, we can definitely copy and, and it's even that much more distinct, but a lot of people are like, well, my handwriting is terrible. So I'd actually rather choose from one of your handwriting styles that that you have that still is completely authentic, but is a little more legible than what I, than mine. And it's not like customers are going to know exactly what your handwriting looks like versus one of the options that we can provide you. That's quite interesting as well with the VIP experience. Like if, if, you know, 10 of your customers get the same postcard and then you have the 11th customer gets a unique one and they, you know, somehow their friends found out, like, then you're adding this extra layer of social proof and like, you know, correspondence, like one-way correspondence with your customers. That's, that's pretty, it's pretty psychologically, I guess, just like effective. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that a good amount where people post a picture of the card that they received to Instagram or something where, because yeah, how often does, do brands do that these days? And it takes, and for, you know, $2, the, to be able to deliver that experience to a customer that may that might have bought from you now five times or spent five hundred dollars with you, like how else can you get something that memorable and special delivered to a customer for that kind of cost? It's just really special experience. It's actually genius. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, whenever I give out like Christmas cards or birthday cards, like I write them a, a big letter because I'm I'm a bit of a writer and I like to write poems and stuff. Sure. So. And people always go nuts. They go like, wow, I didn't, I didn't like that. They love a letter on it. Cause usually you get like the, the stock printed happy birthday and the dear Connor love Nana. Right. And you're like, wow, thanks. You, you went to the effort of walking to the shop, buying a card. Right. And then like, all you did was that. Tell me more about the case studies, like with this new handwriting thing. I also wanted to ask how many customers do you have and how many customers have used this new technology? Uh, well, we have thousands of brands on our platform, you know, ranging in size. Ideal customer is typically a seven-figure-plus Shopify store because mm-hmm. we you know, we natively integrate with Shopify. You get kind of very robust functionality, and it's seven-plus figures. You at, you at least have enough of a customer base that we can create good segments, target like appropriate size segments to get real data and actually move the needle. If you're a tiny store just just starting out, you're not going to be able to build enough segments out of that, out of a very small customer base to really allow you to be as effective. Yeah, but we have thousands of stores, seven to nine plus figure brands that are that are sending, you know, anywhere from hundreds or, or thousands of cards a month to hundreds of thousands of cards and um, consistently see just really, really good returns. And that's why they stick with us. And that's also why we really focus on guiding them and being very hands-on and concierge with our service to ensure that they're, they're doing it the right way. Like we know what we've seen thousands of these campaigns, we've sent millions of cards, we've designed them. And so we, we know it works and we want to make sure that they're set up for success. So you're saying that it's kind of diminishing returns to scale 
if you can't segment the audience enough. It's just hard if you say, I want to target customers that hadn't bought in 30 to 60 days and the audience size of that is 40 people. Yeah. It's just, there's just not a lot you can do with that. That's just not, it's not statistically significant. It's not massively moving the needle. You can still, of course, do campaigns. You can even do, if you're a growing brand, like the handwritten card is a nice touch to establish yourself, mm. especially if you're a growing brand, really acknowledge the people that have bought in early and helped build your business. But in terms of seeing real scale to, to your campaigns, again, if segment sizes are, are really tiny, kind of default, there's not a lot of scale to those campaigns. That's quite nice. Yeah. So you've got both linear pathways there. If you don't have the numbers, you can start with the handwritten, or if you do, you can you can go wild on the lookalike audiences and the segmentations. I, I always ask these two questions and I know we're near in the end. What are your thoughts on capitalism? And I think I've already got a little bit, but I like on that. capitalism? Yeah, on capitalism. That's an interesting question. It's a commerce, it's a commerce podcast. I was like. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm certainly pro-capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, but I think there reaches a point where certain brands are doing things that are potentially anti-competitive or have unfair advantages. And I think that that's where things, you know, you need to step in and, and ensure that there's some level playing field there. So mm-hmm. I guess that that's probably my, my thoughts there, but I'm, I'm generally speaking pro-capitalism. So yeah, that's a good response. I guess that's the analogy of like capitalism is a garden and it can go crazy unless you kind of prune it and, and water it and care for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly, we hear from brands a lot who are on Amazon and Amazon kind of either kicks them off or launches a product that's a copy of their product. And there's nothing uh, I can do about it. Yeah. Nothing you can really do. And so, yeah, I think Amazon is a brilliant business, but there are certain certain things that, that some of these larger companies do that are unfair advantages that they create for themselves. And, and you got to be careful for that. Yeah, true. Okay, pivoting again. Sorry, you know, if you want to share them, you don't have to. But like, what are the lessons that you learned from your parents or your grandparents, or if there was a mentor in your life in an early stage? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question too. I mean, it's interesting because I don't come from an entrepreneurial or business oriented family at all. And I have a very small family, so I didn't have a lot of like mentors or or a big family kind of growing up. My dad was always a very hard worker and I think what I learned from him is more sacrificing to do what is needed to take care of your family and not putting yourself first and working really hard. I can certainly take that lesson from him. He is the furthest thing from like a business mind that you could probably yeah. get, but he's a very smart guy. But yeah, I think I think those kinds of values were imparted on me, which shaped a lot of my thinking, even if it wasn't pure business oriented. But I've always been a big fan of reading kind of business books, everything from psychology to biographies on successful business people like Jobs and Musk and Bezos and and all those guys. And I think I've just been a very avid reader and consumer of stories and data and news and, and information about different success stories, different failures at all different kinds of businesses. And I think that that in general continued to kind of help shape my views and and how I'm just always learning something to like always feel like I have a lot more to learn. Just a work 
in progress, I'd say. Nice. Yeah, that's good. That's nice and humble. Yeah, I would definitely recommend anybody read the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs book. That's probably one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah, great um, book. And great the Musk book. the Musk biography is pretty good. I haven't read the Bezos one, but um, yeah, the Musk one was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, the Everything Store was a really good book on Bezos. And there was a, actually another good book on Amazon that I like. Uh, that I liked a lot called Working Backwards. And it wasn't a biography, but we talk about like business books and learnings. And it was written by some of the senior execs at Amazon who were in the room for a lot of the big decisions that were made, strategic decisions that were made at Amazon, both successes and failures. Teaches about like the the management and leadership principles of the company, how they approach certain decisions that were major decisions and how they became so successful. And I, I really like that one as well. Again, shapes really helped shape a lot of my thinking, how to structure meetings, how to think about hiring, things like that, that, uh, yeah, always, always interested in learning that. That was a fairly recent book. Working backwards. Oh, I'd like to look at that. That reminds me of Ray Dalio's principles. Yep. That's genius. Like the idea of meritocracy. Yeah. Everything, everybody who works at the company has an equal voice and it's Let's respect the idea. I try and bring that to all of my film sets because I've had experiences on film sets where the director or even a gaffer, like somebody in middle or lower, like hierarchy will turn around and go, oh, sorry, Mr. Assistant Director. Sorry, Mr. Producer. Like your idea doesn't mean shit here. And you go like, that shouldn't be the way. Like it should be whatever the idea brings to the table look at it objectively and it doesn't really matter where the source of that idea is is it going to help the project the process then let's do it yeah no absolutely right and when i've run some of the larger e-commerce brands in almost every case i start we don't need to go on a tangent but like i start by sitting with the customer service folks because they are the closest to the customer like they're the people on the front lines with the customer on a daily basis and it is a gold mine of information. When you want to know what the problems are at the company, don't start with like the, yeah, exactly. the VP. Start yeah. with the people that are talking to customers on a daily basis and hearing their pain points and complaints. And they will tell you pretty definitively yeah, where yeah. the problems are in the company. So yeah, it's I, I totally agree with the meritocracy approach and, and try and cultivate that wherever I am. But definitely a good call out. Thanks for that, Michael. That was a really, really nice conversation. Is there anything we can point to your socials and how can people reach you? But is there anything that you'd like to touch on before we we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think that if you're thinking about trying direct mail as a channel, we're making it super easy, make it as easy as email. But I think we also have a completely done for you service. We realize that brands haven't tried it before in a lot of cases, don't know where to start don't know what the best practices are, don't have the bandwidth to even get it going. So we have a full concierge service where we will build the campaign for you. We have a full creative team in-house that will design it using the best practices that we know fully on brand to your specifications, essentially do the whole thing for you. You just have to give your the thumbs up. And for the podcast listeners, I'll just have a special offer. If you go to postpilot.com slash GFO, which stands for Godfather Offer, because it's an offer you can't refuse, we'll do all of that for you and send the first batch of cards on our dime to let you prove it to yourself to see if it works. So you can sign up there completely risk-free and and we'll, we'll let you see for yourself how it works for you. So I'll leave with that, I think. I was going to say, you're not allowed to plug in the last minute, but uh, I might, you might find a GFO author under Conoco Lewis. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Well, people go there, post um, pilot forward slash GFO. People can follow you on LinkedIn if they want to learn more. Yeah. Reach out to me, email Michael at PostPilot on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks so much again, Michael. That was a really wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me, Connor. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.